You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux home blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. She saw my mom in the yard and told her that Brian had shot a gun into his pillow and told my mom if she saw anything that seemed unusual, him skipping school, him taking the car, him being violent, to not even call them, to just call 911. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I'm sitting real, real far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. Um, Yeah, we're all really far away from each other because Jack and Jared are wine tasting in Oregon. So screw yeah. you guys. We're stuck in LA in this heat wave. But yeah, anyways, Billy, go ahead. I'm going to go straight to the day. It's National Potato Day. Ooh. And who doesn't love an, a nice potato? But I'm going to say another thing as well, since me and you are both from Long Island and we love Carvel. It's also National Soft Ice Cream Day. Mm, There's nothing I like, like a great soft ice cream cone. I like a Froyo situation too. All right, well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So today's case takes us back to October 17th of 1995. Songs Fantasy by Mariah Carey and Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio were topping the charts, and movies like Mallrats and Now and Then were in theaters. What a great time. The setting for today's case is Danville, Illinois. And for this episode, I'm going to let our first degree Stephanie tell you all about Danville. Danville is a small Midwest town that is about 15 miles from the Indiana border, about halfway down the state. So when everyone's like, oh, you're from Illinois, so the Chicagoland area. No, I'm like from central Illinois. And it's a farm town, but it was also like a factory town. You know, there used to be a lot of jobs, a lot of factories. And when I grew up, it was a really safe place to live. There wasn't a ton of crime. My grandparents grew up there. My parents grew up there. We actually all went to the same high school. 
school. And it was a really safe place to grow up. And being that this story is taking place in 1995, it's safe to say that we're dealing with simpler times. A time when kids played outside and with each other rather than on their iPads, smartphones, and gaming systems. It was still a time where people around the country and the burbs alike got to know their neighbors. In some towns, neighbors became like family who watched out for one another. And this concept of, quote, love thy neighbor is a tiny slice of Americana that's becoming less and less prevalent in today's age. But there was something very wholesome about this neighborhood, as told by Stephanie. In the 90s, I was obsessed with gymnastics, and I was worried about boys becoming a cheerleader and dance class. Like, all of those things were what I was about. We played outside all the time. My grandparents lived three blocks away. My best friend lived about four blocks away. So we were always on our bikes, always playing in our yards. This was before Facebook, social media. (laughs) You had to be outside doing things instead of inside on your tablet or, you know, playing video games. We knew all of our neighbors and they were all older. So it was kind of just like having a built-in group of grandparents that lived around you. And in that group of built-in grandparents that Stephanie had living in her neighborhood were the McNeelys. So it's confusing because his name is Frank, but they called him Pat. And then her name was Roberta, but they called her Bobby. So we always called them Pat and Bobby. Pat and Bobby were your quintessential Midwest next-door neighbors. We had a really good relationship with them. They loved to garden. They were outside a lot raking leaves, planting flowers, making sure that everything looked great in their yard. They had an above-ground pool, which was so cool to me when I was that age. And they would invite us to come over and swim sometimes. So we did. But I do remember that I was always so excited when I would go outside and they'd be out in the yard. Like I'd run over and give them a hug and be like, hi, like have a good day. But they were just your quintessential Midwest next door neighbors. Like that's the best way to describe them in my opinion. Pat McNeely was 58 years old and Bobby McNeely was 57. They lived in a one-story brick house that was directly next to Stephanie's childhood home. Pat was a retired high school studies teacher and his students described him as a jokester, a funny teacher who used humor to keep the kids engaged. And understandably, kids took his classes and absolutely loved him. Bobby was a retired nurse's aide at a local veterans hospital. Now, we all know that having children presents the very real possibility that you may end up with grandchildren. That's kind of how this whole pyramid scheme of life works. And that role means something different to each and every set of grandparents, as family dynamics are always, always different. So sometimes grandparents pop into the lives of grandchildren for holidays and birthdays. They eat some traditional meals. They send birthday checks. You get it. But sometimes being a grandparent means stepping in when your child the parent of your grandchild, is unable to care for their own children. And that's exactly what happened in the case of the McNeelys. The McNeelys' daughter, Karen Pruitt, struggled to care for her son, Brian Pruitt. She'd been 19 when she met Brian's father, whose name was Joe Williams. He was 17 years older than her, and he was divorced. Right, and she'd met him at the bowling alley where she'd worked when she was fresh out of high school. Karen and Joe dated for two years, but he ended it once she got pregnant with Brian. Karen considered having an abortion, but then she reconsidered. 
She gave birth to Brian and shortly thereafter started dating someone new. Now, this new boyfriend was sweet and charming at first, but then his abusive side became evident. He would beat Brian, who was a toddler at the time, for wetting the bed, among other things. This man was extremely abusive towards Karen as well. He turned Karen on to heavy cocaine use, and by the time she worked up the nerve to leave this guy, she was a full-blown addict. So as Brian's mother Karen struggled with her addiction, Brian was shuffled around a lot, and he was neglected a lot. Karen ended up in jail on numerous occasions for charges like possession and like forgery. According to records in 1992, Brian's legal guardian became the Department of Family and Children's Services. Then Pat and Bobby McNeely offered to step in as his primary caretakers. Clearly, the circumstances of Brian's early life did not set him up for immediate success. So Brian lived with them until he was, it was like from first grade until he was about 13. And I remember playing with him like in the backyard and we'd, you know, talk over the fence or like play catch over the fence, just little things like that. Or he'd be swimming in the pool and wave at us, you know, just normal neighborly things. And I remember one time he came out and had a pet hamster brought it over to the fence and let me play with it and hold it and gave it back to him and went inside. Um, But I remember little things like that. So Brian experienced bouts of living with his grandparents, being in the care of the DFCS, and alternated between group homes and treatment centers in both Arizona and Texas. And because he was shuffled around so much, he didn't have a stable home environment. The McNeelys, his grandparents, did their best, but they were aging and didn't know how to handle such a rebunctious kid. As Brian got older, behavioral disorders started to become more evident. He was sometimes aggressive, and doctors tried a cocktail of meds to curb some of his more problematic behaviors. Yeah, so he was kind of known as the troublemaker. I mean, he did not have the best upbringing. And Pat and Bobby took him in and were really the only ones that gave him a fair shot and took care of him. But when he came back, I just remember that It was March of 1995 when he came back. So I just remember him always being in trouble. Like there was never a time where he wasn't in trouble the second time he came back. So when Brian came back to live with his grandparents, there was a, let's just call it an adjustment period. When he was younger, we noticed that our landscaping lights had been kicked in. So my dad decided to set up a video camera. He borrowed it from my aunt. It was back before video cameras were like a thing. It was you put a VHS in the video camera. So he set it up in the window and saw that Brian was the one coming over and kicking the landscaping lights in. And my dad was, of course, a little bit ticked off about it. But he went and told Pat and Bobby and was like, I don't need him to pay for pay for the lights. Like, that's totally okay. He's a kid. I get it. But I just want you to know what's going on. And they were like, we are so sorry. They had Brian come over and apologize to my dad face to face. He apologized. And apparently after that, he was nothing but nice to our family. He was very friendly to me. And I never had any personal altercations with him ever. Brian struggled to find normalcy and was eventually sent to a number of facilities to get adequate care for mental health issues that he faced. He lived with them until he was about 13, and then he started getting into trouble again and was sent to psychiatric ward. He was sent to foster homes. He was sent to facilities, and I think in Phoenix and Texas, and 
once he was done with all of those rehab situations, he got to go live with Pat and Bobby again. And that was March of 1995. When Brian returned to live with his grandparents, as Stephanie just said, it was the spring of 1995. Brian was now 16 years old. And by all accounts, he seemed to be doing better. And initially upon his return, Brian seemed, well, great. It seemed as though the regimented environment he'd been in during the preceding months had done him a world of good. He was prescribed medication that seemed to be effective. And he was taking this medication. And he was also attending high school classes with solid attendance. He was socializing with friends, and he even got an after-school job at a local concession stand. And this is a story that my mom told me that I don't that I didn't remember specifically. But I guess when he had come back, he had like a part-time job at a local park and they had a concession stand and that's where he worked. And he would bring candy home and he said that it was expired candy that he got for free. My mom seems to think that he may have taken it, but that's just her opinion. (laughs) Um, He would bring the candy home and bring it to me because he knew that I liked those little candy dots, the ones that look like they're on receipt paper. I loved those when I was little, so he would always bring those over to the house for me. Spring turned to fall, and Brian remained consistent in his progress. So next door to the McNeely's at Stephanie's house, she and her little sister were getting excited for the fast-approaching Halloween holiday. And things were, well, normal. But that would all end on October 17th. And it was a totally normal day for me. Went to school, got done at 3.30. My mom picked me up. My sister, I think she was already at home. She was in preschool, so she would have already been home. We get home at 3.30. My grandma at the time lived in Indiana. And she would always come over to Danville once a month for her church card club. Such a Midwest thing. And she stopped by the house on her way to church. So this was at about 4.30. And my mom, my sister, and myself went outside and were talking to her in the driveway, just like we normally would before she went to her card club, just chatting. And we were out there for about 15 minutes. We went inside and I got my stuff together and my mom put me in the car to go to dance class. By the time she picked me up, it was dark. We were driving home. It was about a 15 minute drive from where my dance studio was. And as we get closer to the house, we can see all of these police lights, which typically wouldn't be uncommon because there was a T intersection right by our house. Gilbert, the street we lived on, was one of the busiest streets in Danville. So there were a lot of accidents right there. And there were always police at that intersection because people never really took it seriously. As we get closer, we realize that the police cars and lights are coming from our front yard and we can see police tape that went from around our front yard down two houses. So we park on the side street, run up the driveway, and the neighbors that were two houses down run up. And I just remember her so vividly saying, Brian killed Pat and Bobby. And my mom kind of put her hands on my ears and a police officer intercepted at that point. And the police officer was actually a family friend of ours and walked us inside. Remember how we talked about how the residents of this neighborhood were tight-knit? Well, the whole reason Pat and Bobby's bodies were found was because neighbors noticed that it was late and there were no lights on in the home, but there should have been. So the neighbors called the police and requested a welfare check. 
Officers arrived and entered the one-story brick home. There on the floor, they found the body of Pat McNeely. He had been stabbed multiple times in the back. The officers continued to go from room to room, and eventually, they found the body of Bobby McNeely. She was lying in bed, and she too had been stabbed in the back multiple times. Inside the house, it looked like someone had made a half-assed attempt to clean up the evidence inside, and the McNeely's car was also missing. But police officers quickly located the car because it barely made it out of town, and behind the wheel was Brian. Once Brian was sitting across the table from a detective in an interrogation room, he spilled everything. He said he told his grandpa that he was hungry, and he kindly went to Burger King to get Brian some food. Once his grandfather was gone and the coast was clear, Brian stabbed his grandmother in the back while she was in bed. Once his grandpa returned home with food for his grandson, he too was stabbed in the back until he was dead as well. In a taped confession Brian made to the police, he said, quote, I could not stop myself from killing them. I didn't know I was doing this. I wouldn't want to hurt them. They're all I have. Brian eventually agreed to lead the police to the location where he stashed the knife that he used to kill them. Okay, so what the hell happened? Outwardly, Brian seemed to be doing a world better. He'd returned from receiving care, and when he got home, he seemed like a new kid. Well, it turned out that not all was right behind closed doors. It seemed as though Brian had actually stopped taking his meds, and then he declined quickly. And that job Brian had? While it seemed as though he enjoyed it at first, at a certain point, he was abruptly fired. And it would later be revealed that he lost his job because he was caught stealing. He had threatened his grandpa numerous times before and had been violent numerous times before. In fact, my mom told me that Bobby had come out a couple of weeks before the murders. She saw my mom in the yard and told her that Brian had shot a gun into his pillow and told my mom if she saw anything that seemed unusual him skipping school, him taking the car, him being violent, to not even call them, to just call 911. It was soon revealed that Brian had exhibited a host of disturbing behavior in the months leading up to the murder of his grandparents. He stabbed furniture. He lit fires inside the home, trashing everything. He had been arrested for disorderly conduct at a local shopping mall. Following the slayings, the McNeely home was searched. And they found Pat McNeely's diary. And in it were many entries that were just sad. And they were talking about the impossible situation that he faced in regard to his grandson. And he wrote, I do not wish to force him to leave, but he must change. We just can't go on like this. It was later revealed that Brian's psychiatrist, Dr. Thomas Herman, wrote in the DCFS file that Brian was a, quote, scary kid and, quote, inappropriate for a family setting. When the Danville police processed the crime scene after the murder, they found a letter written by McNeely in 1995, and it read, Sometimes I feel that we are in peril, and I don't think we should have to live like that. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. 
Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. The shock of what had happened 20 feet away from her home to two people that her family loved hits Stephanie hard. And as her parents learned more about the timeline of the events of the day of the murder, they made a terrifying realization. The scariest part of the story to me, the thing that bothers me the most, is that is something my mom told me years after it happened. She said that when we were standing outside in the driveway talking to my grandma at 4.30, he had just murdered them. And my mom remembers seeing him outside on the back patio walking around smoking cigarettes. And, you know, we talked to my grandma for 15 minutes and she didn't do anything. My mom didn't call the police because all he was doing was smoking cigarettes in the backyard. So we went in and then as soon as we went in, he took their car and left. 
later in his depositions, I guess, he had told the police officers that he saw all of us outside and was waiting on us to go inside so that he could leave because he knew that my mom knew he wasn't supposed to be driving and knew that she would probably call the police or call Pat and Bobby to let them know. But my mind goes to what would have happened if my mom would have tried to stop him? What would have happened if my mom would have gone over there as soon as he left? Would we be the ones that have, were we going to be the ones that were going to find the body, like the bodies? You know, could we have gotten hurt? Could he have gotten mad that we were not going inside and come over and tried to hurt all of us? Like those things replay in my head and that's what scares me the most. And when my mom told me that, I'm like, I don't think that I ever needed to know that. On the heels of the news of this horrific double homicide, the community was horrified, and it wasn't long until the media dug their hooks into this story. After that, my mom said that the media was absolutely relentless. She said that they were asking to set up in our front yard and knocking on our door and calling our house, and she didn't want to stay there for that. She was like sick to her stomach, and she said, we need to get out of here. So we ended up spending the night at my grandparents' house the night of the murder. It was, I mean, it was a big story in Danville. Like, murders didn't happen in Danville. Meanwhile, the investigation into Pat and Bobby's slangs were ongoing. And as police started to dig in and question family and friends of the couple, they learned that all was not well behind closed doors at the McNeely home. It turns out that arguments between Brian and his grandparents were becoming more and more frequent, as well as increasingly violent. Brian was stealing, he was destroying property, he was refusing to take his meds, and he was making threats to physically harm both his grandmother and his grandfather. After months of troublesome behavior, with Brian showing no signs of slowing, Pat and Bobby met with their DCFS caseworker to discuss the best course of action for Brian, because it seemed like for whatever reason, despite Pat and Bobby's love and kindness and support for their grandson, his condition was declining rapidly, and the McNeelys were becoming increasingly concerned for their safety. In Bobby's original letter to DCFS, she wrote, This will be our last adventure with Brian. If it ever ends this time, it will be the final time. And you can't blame Bobby for feeling this way. It's not like they were dealing with a five-year-old having temper tantrums. Brian was 16. He was a large 16. And he was bold enough to bring a gun into the house and shoot into his bed. He was bold enough to light a fire in his bedroom. He was bold enough to stab furniture. Their safety was clearly at risk. And this letter was proof that they were more than hinting at the DCFS to intervene. And it turned out that Bobby had written multiple letters to DCFS. In another one of them, she wrote, quote, Brian never seems to feel bad or sorry for anything. Instead, he seems to boast about it all. He seems proud of the evil that he does. And during the McNeely's second meeting with DCFS on this subject, they all came to the same consensus. That yes, Brian should be removed as soon as possible. He needed more care than what Brian's grandparents could provide. But Brian wasn't removed. Now, why was that? So on the heels of Pat and Bobby's murder, this is the question that everyone was asking. Their family members cast blame on the Department of Children and Family Services. They said that the agency did not remove Brian from his grandparents' home despite repeated warnings and pleas for help from the McNeelys, from private social workers, and from the boy's psychiatrist. 
but DCFS defended itself and said the McNeelys canceled their request to have him removed two weeks prior to the murder. Eventually, the DCFS was ordered by a judge to stop discussing the case publicly until Brian's prosecution was complete. Now, I think this entire thing is really interesting because we've heard about DCFS and their role in homicides multiple times in the last handful of years. We dealt with it with the Josh and Susan Powell case. That's the one where the husband was presumed to have killed Susan, his wife, and then a DCFS worker brought the kids to the house and he basically pulled the kids inside, locked her out, and then blew the house up. How much responsibility is on them? It's a really good question. And we we also saw it in the Gabriel Fernandez case. We are now seeing how underfunded all of these resources are compared to the police and things like that. Every time they defend themselves and say they're underfunded, say their caseloads are too high, they don't always have the resources to keep up with every family the way that they should. It's one of the most thankless jobs uh, when you think about it, because you're th- they have to wa- walk a tightrope of protecting children and then on the other side, t- potentially taking children away from their parents, which is one of the worst things you could ever you ever think of as a parent. So um, it, it's an incredibly thankless job. It's almost as if they could, you know, and I really do feel for um, for those workers, but you're right. It's as we've seen, um, as this, this lid has, has, has been broken open and we've seen how much the police budgets are versus things like child protective services. Um, things definitely have to change. I think the failure comes multi-system. I think, you know, I think there are a lot of, you can put blame on so many different people in this situation. You know, we'll never know exactly when they asked to have him removed from the house or if they rescinded that ask or if they filed an emergency to get him out of the house, we'll never really know because it was never in the newspaper articles. But I do think that DCFS probably didn't handle it the best. I think that on his part, he had the option to take medication and he was blatantly not taking it. He had medication that would help his mental issues and mental disorders, and he chose not to take it. So slowly, after Brian's arrest, more came to light regarding a possible motive. So apparently, according to Brian, he snapped after meeting with a social worker on the day of the murder. He said the following, I turned a channel. When you turn the channel, you get a different program. It wasn't me. I had no control. All right. So this is interesting. This is either total bullshit or rather astute for a 16-year-old. He continued, quote, It was me in a way, but it wasn't. I could see things going on, but I couldn't do anything about it. So according to the Herald and Review article that was published on October 27th of 95, Brian also said that he had trouble sleeping because he was haunted by what he had done. Brian was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. He was held at the Vermilion County Jail until his trial began. And meanwhile, Bobby's daughter, Darla, sued her nephew, Brian. She also sued the DCFS and the caseworker assigned to Brian's case. The lawsuit charged Kratt and other DCFS officials for ignoring repeated warnings about Brian's increasingly violent behavior and doing nothing to protect the McNeelys. As Brian awaited trial in jail, he foolishly participated in a number of media interviews where he lashed out at his relatives. 
According to the Associated Press, Brian said, quote, now my aunt, my family, they say that I have destroyed their lives. I destroyed their lives? Look who's in jail. Look who might be here forever. My life is more destroyed than theirs will ever be. Brian continued, one thing that bothers me is that I've been labeled a scary kid, a troublemaker. People call me deranged. I mean, these people have no right to call me that. So Brian's in jail. He's unable at this point to hurt anyone else in his town. But despite that fact, the implications of what he'd done had only just begun. I remember being upset when it happened. I remember crying. I remember being scared, mostly, because that stuff didn't happen. And it was the aftermath that really affected me the most. I remember always being so upset in fourth and fifth grade. Like, this happened right before Halloween. I do not remember what I dressed up as that year. I could tell you every other grade, fourth grade, no, I have no clue. But I was just such a mess for so long. But I remember after it happening, being terrified that something was going to happen to my parents. If my mom or dad was one minute late to pick me up from school, dance class, anywhere, I would be hysterical to the point where I'd be sitting at school and I would watch the cars come in the parking lot and pull around. And if my mom wasn't in the line, when I got outside, I would panic and I would just start crying. And I would tell anyone that listened, somebody murdered my parents. I know someone murdered my parents. I I was kind of out of it for a while. I didn't want to look at the house. I was scared to live next door to it. I don't know why. It doesn't really make sense, but the memory of everything that happened there every time we'd pull in the driveway was just a lot. And I would always ask my mom to keep the blinds shut on that side of the house. To be 34 and 35 like my parents were when it happened and to have that happen next door when you have two little kids, it's kind of devastating. My mom said she got sick to her stomach thinking about how she let me and my little sister be around Brian. But she said the worst part of the whole thing was how it affected me. And my dad said the same thing. Brian Trial began in 1996. And due to the media coverage and concern that he might not be able to receive a fair trial, the proceedings were moved from Danville to Peoria, Illinois. Brian pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. And his defense cited how doctors had diagnosed Brian with several mental illnesses, illnesses that could cause angry outbursts. And the prosecution detailed one example after the next that were demonstrating what seemed to be depraved indifference towards his cruel actions. After each side delivered closing arguments and rested, the jury deliberated for two hours before returning with a verdict. When all was said and done, the jury ultimately rejected Brian's insanity defense and found him guilty. Brian showed no emotion as his fate was sealed. On August 15, 1996, 17-year-old Brian Pruitt was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. After Brian's conviction, he continued to participate in media interviews. Brian stated that he will be, quote, set that a gang will take care of him in prison and that he can still be a hustler in jail. He told the Daily Chronicle in an interview, that he can gamble there, that he can sell drugs. And he said that his street smarts and his ties with the gangster disciples will keep him safe in jail. 
and that there will be other things for him to do besides make license plates or watch TV. He said that other inmates have taught him how to survive in prison, and so had his mom, Karen. Of course, her name's Karen, by the way, who herself served stints in prison, if you recall us saying that earlier. He said, no one is going to hurt me. If people don't like me, they can just stay away from me. If they don't, they will walk into something because I can guarantee it. If I go, I'm taking someone with me. Brian told the Chronicle that he passed the time by annoying other inmates. And he made sure to add that he is no longer taking the meds prescribed to him by doctors to control his mental state. He said, I like to play with people and manipulate their minds. Bragging about the shit he did to land in solitary confinement multiple times. Quote, I like to get them in an argument or make them cry. It's humorous. I ain't got no TV or radio, so I need to do something to stay entertained. As Stephanie moved through life, the onslaught of anxiety subsided, as did her memories about what had happened. And she eventually realized that she really knew few details about what had transpired next door. It's always been hard to find information on the case on the internet because it happened in 1995. And there wasn't like a ton of websites and resources where you could find newspaper articles about it. When everything happened, my mom and dad would always cut out the newspaper articles so that I wouldn't get more information and wouldn't get further triggered by new information. So I didn't really know a lot of details when it happened. And then high school, college, I started asking and my mom would like give me a few extra tidbits every now and again and tell me a few new details. And once I was able to read stuff on the internet, I was like, wow, that's, that fills in a lot of blanks. Stephanie was a kid when her neighbors and family friends were murdered by their grandson. And while she was extremely traumatized by what had happened right next door, slowly her life moved on. Her anxiety got better the pain subsided, and she could talk about the events more freely. The news had lost interest in the following decades, but that would all change in 2019. You see, things had changed over the course of the past 24 years or so. The understanding of psychology had progressed leaps and bounds, as did the realization that the brain of a child does not function the same way as the brain of an adult. And as a result of these new universally held understandings, legislation changed as well. In 2012, a United States Supreme Court ruling found it to be unconstitutional to sentence juvenile offenders to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So slowly but surely, all the juvenile offenders in Illinois who received life without parole sentences would need to have their cases re-examined and ultimately resentenced. And the landmark Miller versus Alabama decision was based on a case involving a 14-year-old who had received a life without parole sentence. The decision noted that during the original sentencing, quote, consideration of his chronological age and its hallmark features, among them immaturity, impetuosity, and failure to appreciate risks and consequences. It also didn't consider the family and home environment that surrounds him and from which he cannot usually extricate himself, no matter how brutal or dysfunctional. In 2019, it would finally be Brian's turn to get in front of a judge and plead his case for a new sentence. This was his chance to get out. And Brian now was far from the 17-year-olds who had received that life without parole sentence. He was now 40 years old. When I saw a picture of him after all that time, part of me had a little bit of empathy for him. He had a really tumultuous upbringing, and he had the chance to turn it around. 
he had two people who took him in and loved him and would have done anything for him. And he blew it. And what's so sad to me and the most devastating thing about this entire case for me is that he did have a bad upbringing, but the people that were affected by it were the two people that cared about him the most, the two people that loved him the most. They would have done anything for him. They took him in. They paid for everything for him. They got, they, they tried to get him the help that he needed. And when it came down to it, his choice was to go off medication. And we know what happened after that. It's just sad. It's devastating. And it's something that didn't have to happen. Leading up to the trial, Brian's mother, Karen, spoke out publicly, urging authorities to let her son out of jail. And she also took the opportunity to defend her past actions as well. Karen told the News Gazette that when Brian was young, she asked the Illinois DCFS to place him in foster care so that she could go to rehab. And she said, quote, I don't know what he went through in that foster home. My mother would send him new clothes, but when she saw him, he was never in those clothes. He wasn't cleaned up and his hair wasn't combed. Karen said that her mother, Bobby, with whom she had a rocky relationship, was the one who demanded to be Brian's caretaker. Karen said that she didn't think it was a good idea, adding she loved her mother, but thought she could be controlling. Starting to get into some victim blaming here. Karen explained that Brian was simply a hyper child. His doctor's solution was to put him on medication, but she didn't like that, and her son didn't like that, because it made him, quote, lethargic and zombie-like. And when Brian started getting in trouble at home and school, the McNeelys asked DCFS to intervene, and the agency placed him in a local group at foster homes, then a facility in Phoenix, but he always ran away. Karen also said this. Now listen to this. She said, quote, My mom kept telling me he's going to kill us one day. I just never believed her. You don't want to think like that. I just thought, mom's exaggerating because that's what she does. The hearing lasted for one day. And according to court documents, the judge questioned Brian, quote, tell me about your grandparents. Brian replied, I miss them because I love them. They didn't deserve this. I don't know what else to say. They weren't bad people. They weren't perfect. They took me out of a bad place and gave me a home. So the prosecutors asked the judge to resentence Brian to natural life in prison. They did not want to let him out. And they argued that Brian had shown little or no remorse for these crimes. The prosecutor said, Mr. Pruitt, why don't you tell the judge why you killed your grandparents? And he said, I still don't know why. And this isn't good. Generally, on these sorts of boards, they want to hear introspection, reflection, accountability. And Brian isn't exhibiting any of that here. So a retired Danville police detective was among three retired officers who testified at Brian's hearing. And he said that during one of these interviews he conducted with Brian right after the murders, Brian said he knew it was wrong. And he also said that his brain was telling him not to do it, but his body was telling him to do it. So after the conclusion of the hearing, Brian was resentenced to life without parole yet again for murdering his grandparents. So he would remain in prison for the rest of his life. But yeah, I a part of me feels empathetic and a part of me is like, do you have any clue what 
your actions did to so many people. It wasn't just the two victims and it's not just you. It's my whole family, the entire neighborhood, the police officers, the lawyers, the DCFS caseworkers. It's everyone that your actions affected. Like, what is wrong with you? Stephanie moved from Danville. And slowly, each one of her family members did too. I would say this last time that I went to Danville was probably one of the last times that I'll ever go there. My grandma was the last family member that I had living there, and she moved out to Arizona to be closer to my parents. So I went to help her pack, and you know, no trip to Danville is ever complete without going to Custard Cup, which is an ice cream place, and driving by the house you grew up in. And I drove by and I took the picture of the house next door. And it doesn't bring back the feelings that it did when I lived there. It's more of just a memory and kind of a story we tell people. With the resentencing happening in 2019, yeah, I would say that this is kind of me closing the book on that. Well, a huge, huge thank you to Stephanie for being our first degree guest this week. If you have a story to tell, please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Jensen at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek. Uh, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and we are forgoing killing time this week because I'm literally in the middle of nowhere in Oregon and the internet is shitty and I'm going to go chug a bottle of rosé but we'll pick back up next week and because we're not all together I guess I'm going to sign this off myself so only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but not that close you ever meet someone who seems kind of off whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you truth finder has you covered you can search for people by name address phone number email and more Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.